welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for September 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the literature for the last month and talk about the trials that caught our eye. So let's start with three negative trials. The first in JAMA is the effect of fenoldepam on use of renal replacement therapy among patients with acute kidney injury after cardiac surgery. So the rationale for this study is that acute kidney injury requiring renal replacement therapy after cardiac surgery occurs in 5% of patients with an associated mortality of up to 60%. Fenoldepam, a selective dopamine 1 agonist, induces vasodilatation of the renal, mesenteric, peripheral and coronary arteries without the D2 effects and this leads to a theoretical preferential renal medullary vasodilatation over renal cortical vasodilation and a theoretical better blood flow profile. So this double-blind multi-center RCT randomized patients with rifle criteria R while in ICU after cardiac surgery to fenoldepam or placebo, which was saline, as an infusion for 96 hours. The plan was to enroll 1,000 patients, which was based on a 50% reduction in renal replacement therapy from a 10% baseline to 5%. Now that would require 870 patients, which they increased to 1,000 to allow for dropout. The trial was stopped after the third interim analysis with 667 patients enrolled, and it was stopped for futility, a decision strengthened by the higher than expected renal replacement rate. Now it was 18% in the placebo group, not 10%. So the outcomes from those 667 patients? Renal replacement therapy in ICU occurred in 20% in the fenoldepam group versus 18% in the placebo group with a p-value of 0.47, so that is no difference in the primary outcome. Fenoldepam didn't prevent the need for renal replacement therapy. 30-day mortality was 23% with fenoldepam versus 22% with placebo, not significant. And hypotension was 26% with fenolopam versus 15% with placebo with a p-value of 0.001. So this result is not in agreement with previous small studies and meta-analyses that suggest fenolopam has a nephroprotective effect. This is the largest RCT and given these negative results, the use of fenolopam to prevent acute kidney injury and renal replacement therapy is not justified. The second negative study is a multi-center randomized clinical trial of IV iron supplementation for anemia of traumatic critical illness published in Critical Care Medicine. So anemia is common in critical illness with a multifactorial etiology including alterations in iron metabolism it's diverted from bone marrow sites of erythropoiesis into ferritin within the reticuloendothelial system. This multicenter trial randomized 150 adult trauma patients with a hemoglobin less than 12 
grams per deciliter to iron sucrose 100 milligrams IV three times a week or placebo. They report that there was a baseline functional iron deficiency in 89% of patients. There was no difference in serum iron concentrations in both groups at any time point of treatment. Serum ferritin increased in the study group that received all their doses of iron compared to placebo. There was no difference in haemoglobin concentration, red cell transfusion requirement, length of stay, infection or mortality. So overall, functional iron deficiency and anemia is common in traumatic critical illness, but replacement with regular IV iron at this dose does not appear to offer benefit and cannot be recommended. The third negative RCT is randomized controlled trial of calcitriol in severe sepsis, published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So the use of vitamin D in critical illness is an area of recent interest and perhaps the latest in our journey to understand and attempt to manipulate the endocrine perturbations of critical illness. Observational studies have described an association between low vitamin D levels and adverse outcomes. However, the causal relationship is unproven, although it is biologically plausible. This double-blind RCT randomized 67 adult patients with septic shock to a single dose of calcitriol, that was 2 mics of 125 vitamin D, or placebo. And this occurred at randomization in ICU. They report that the groups were well matched at baseline, that they had predominantly respiratory sepsis, Calcitriol resulted in a vitamin D level of 75.7 versus placebo, who was 16.9, at 6 hours after the dose. There were no difference in plasma cytokines or immunological proteins. There was an increased expression of immunological protein mRNA and interleukin-10 mRNA in the calcitriol group. There was no difference in renal injury markers and there was no difference in clinical outcomes like length of stay and mortality. So in summary, the authors conclude that this is insufficient to warrant phase 3 studies and that additional phase 2 studies are required to assess if higher or repeated doses of calcitriol can affect immune function in severe sepsis. Okay, so let's move on to some sepsis process of care type papers. Firstly, in critical care medicine, we have sepsis severity score, an internationally derived scoring system from the surviving sepsis campaign database. So scoring systems are needed to provide adjustment for case mix when comparing patient level data between institutions or countries. Traditionally, ICU has used SOFA, Apache or SAPS, and these models have been inconsistent in sepsis. So, the surviving sepsis campaign developed a scoring system and used international prospective data to evaluate its use in 23,438 patients with suspected or confirmed sepsis. 
The model contained 36 variables and performed well in terms of calibration, that is that it examines how well an observed number of events, which is deaths, compare to the number of events estimated by the model. It performed well in terms of discrimination, that is the likelihood that a randomly selected patient who dies will have a higher estimated prob probability of dying than does a patient who survives. So it looked like the model was okay. The variables included uh, sepsis origin, is ward, ED or ICU, with ward and ICU having a higher odds ratio of death than ED. Geographic region, cardiovascular organ failure, lactate, hypotension with plus or minus responsiveness, infection site, other organ dysfunction like renal, hepatic, hematologic, pulmonary organs. Uh, mechanical ven ventilation with various plateau pressures, temperature, chills, respiratory rate, white cell count, hyperglycemia, mental state. Interestingly, a negative association with mortality was, obs was observed with cardiovascular organ failure with uh, a lactate greater than 4 millimoles per litre, and that was an odds ratio of 0.55 in patients who received greater than 20 mls per kilo of fluid with cardiovascular failure, odds ratio of 0.61, a urinary origin, odds ratio of 0.89, meningitis, odds ratio of 0.65, a temp greater than 38, odds ratio of 0.83, or chills with rigor, odds ratio of 0.67. So that's interesting that there are some uh, associations with survival uh, in sepsis. So perhaps this scoring system is the start of a reliable sepsis-specific scoring system that will be refined over time and allow better comparisons of populations in sepsis and sepsis studies. The next study in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine is the relationship between hospital volume and mortality in severe sepsis. So severe sepsis shares similarities with stroke and acute myocardial infarct in that it has a high incidence and high mortality. Does it also share the characteristics of better outcomes in high volume centres? So this retrospective study used a US nationally representative sample of a database of approximately 8 million admissions per annum they found 914,200 patients with severe sepsis using consensus guideline criteria and identified cases using ICD-9 codes for infection and organ dysfunction and this is a previously validated method. So this represents an annual national disease burden of 4.5 million cases of sepsis in the US. They collected over 100 variables, including clinical, demographic, uh, and institution-specific variables. And the hospital annual caseload varied from one case per year to 2,500 cases of severe sepsis per year. So what did they find? Well, there was no difference in unadjusted hospital mortality between hospitals treating less than 50 cases per year and those treating over 500 cases per year. However, higher volumes hospitals treated more sepsis patients with respiratory disease and renal failure than lower volume hospitals. 
the highest volume hospitals had significantly lower adjusted mortality than the lowest volume hospitals. And that were odds ratio of 0.64 with 95% confidence intervals pretty tight at 0.6 to 0.69. And that relationship wasn't affected by rural or urban status. The relationship between volume and outcome as a continuous relationship revealed a decline in hospital mortality of minus 2.15% per 100 cases that volume of sepsis treated increased. So low volume hospitals were more likely to treat patients with one organ system dysfunction while high volume hospitals were more likely to treat multi-organ failure. In sepsis, with fewer than four organ dysfunctions, the mortality was 10.4% in high-volume hospitals compared to 18.9% in low-volume, and that's an odds ratio of 0.54. In sepsis patients with only respiratory dysfunction, mortality was 19.2% in high-volume hospitals compared to 27.8% in low-volume, again an odds ratio of 0.54. So overall, this study reports a lower adjusted severe sepsis hospital mortality in patients admitted to ICU in higher volume hospitals compared to lower volume hospitals. And it also confirms the relationship between organ failures or number of organ failures and mortality. What do we conclude from this? Do larger institutions manage to achieve better results through better systems response to time-sensitive multidisciplinary responses? Does this support the idea of regionalised care? Does the relative oversupply of intensive care in the US account for this and reduce the application of these results anywhere? I'm sure this will be debated uh, in the, particularly in North America. Moving away from sepsis, uh, in critical care medicine, um, there's a intra-aortic balloon pump effects on a macrocirculation and microcirculation in cardiogenic shock patients supported by VA ECMO. So this single centre prospective observational study examines the hemodynamic effects of the balloon pump in patients on ECMO for cardiogenic shock. The preamble is that VA ECMO increases left ventricular afterload through its reinjection of blood into the aorta. And this can result in pulmonary edema, which can have catastrophic consequences, particularly in patients with poor residual LV function, dilated LV, severe MR, etc. So in 12 consecutive patients, they report that stopping the balloon pump was associated with an increase in PA occlusion pressure, LV dimensions, and a decreased pulse pressure. There was no change to microcirculation measures in the brain and the thumb. So this is limited pilot data, but it is thought-provoking, and it probably adds weight to the need for further prospective RCTs examining the effect of ECMO plus or minus balloon pump on short and long-term outcomes in cardiogenic shock. Another ECMO paper, so this is a position paper for the organization of ECMO programs for acute respiratory failure in adult patients. And this is published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine by the International ECMO Network. So this position paper aims to provide an optimal approach to organizing an ECMO program for acute respiratory failure in adults. 
through consensus opinion from an international group of expert providers. It discusses a lot of things, including it defines modalities, VA, VV, um, CO2 removal. It discusses indications, ARDS, status asthmaticus, bridge to lung transplant, post-lung transplant support, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, PE, pulmonary hypertension crisis, and bronchopleural fistula. It talks about regional organisation and the demand for VV outside pandemic influenza may only be 10 cases per million population per year and this lends support to having regional programs to maintain experience. ECMO centres with volumes of greater than 25 cases per year have better outcomes than those with 10 to 20 cases per year and less than 10 cases per year. The minimal ECMO volume for competency is controversial. 25 cases per year is derived from the paediatric data, but there isn't adult data to prove this. Lower volume regional centres should partner with more experienced higher volume centres with network sharing protocols and standardised care. ECMO networks should have mobile retrieval teams available 24-7, able to transfer, initiate and care for ECMO. Tertiary ECMO centres should have an ECMO director. All staff caring for ECMO should be trained, credentialed with appropriate physical and non-ICU support. And programs of education and quality evaluation should be established. So, if you're working in a high, moderate or low volume centre or thinking of setting one up, this is a good paper to guide your process. So let's move on to kids. And there's a really interesting paper uh, about the epidemiology of death in the PICU at five US teaching hospitals. So this prospective multi-centre observational study aims to provide systematic data describing end-of-life care in children who died in ICUs in the US. In five US PICUs observed for 12 months, there were 9,500 admissions with an ICU mortality rate of 2.39%. The median age of death was two years and two-thirds occurred in the context of chronic diseases. 6% were ventilator-dependent, 15% required nutritional support, and 15% re received surgical procedures in the last 72 hours of life. The median ICU stay for children who died was 5.7 days, with 43% of the deaths occurring after 7 PICU days. In terms of the nature of dying, 70% of the children died following withholding or withdrawal, 16% were diagnosed as brain dead and 14 died following unsuccessful resuscitation. Only 64% of those who died following withdrawal or withholding had a formal do not resuscitate order in place. The authors point out that this is a low rate of DNR and discuss the nuances of this including the problems with the actual term DNR versus natural death. They tell us that there are two patterns of dying. Longer-term patients with chronic diseases who are more likely to have a DNR and die following withdrawal of organ supports and shorter-term patients with new-onset illnesses, no DNR and more likely to die with a diagnosis of brain death 
or unsuccessful resuscitation. So in summary, this is an interesting paper and it allows us to see the nature of dying in 192 children in US PICUs. Staying on the topic of end-of-life care in ICU, uh, the opportunity cost of futile treatment in the ICU in critical care medicine. So this paper starts with the argument that delayed access to ICU increases mortality and morbidity for critically ill patients. Given this, the resource should be used carefully. Providing critical care to patients that may not benefit, that is patients that are dying, not deteriorating, is an area of practice that requires careful consideration as providing non-beneficial treatment may prevent beneficial treatment being provided to other patients, that is an opportunity cost. In one healthcare system, 13 clinicians convened for a focus group to discuss futile treatment. This was analysed and a questionnaire developed to identify patients perceived as receiving futile treatment. Over a three-month period, this was administered to the institutions in 36 critical care clinicians while also looking at ED and ICU utilisation. So in 1,136 patients, they report that 80% of patients never received futile treatment and with a 4.6% hospital mortality and a 7.3% six-month mortality. 8.6% probably received futile treatment and 11% received futile treatment with a 68% hospital mortality and an 85% six-month mortality. On 55% of study days, there was at least one patient receiving futile care in the ICU. On 38% of days, ICUs were full and providing futile care. There were delays in admitting patients from ED and other hospitals on days that the ICU was full and providing futile care. What does this tell us? The authors make a real effort to focus on the importance of clinicians providing the best possible care. And this is obviously an emotionally charged area. Still, this suggests, suggests that provision of non-beneficial care to dying patients may result in harm to other patients. Finally, let's just have a quick look at Ebola. We are all aware of the public health emergency and human tragedy that has emerged in West Africa due to the Ebola virus disease crisis. In an attempt to understand this, we have reviewed the rapidly changing literature from the major journals over recent months. And we have, if you go to the Critique website, you'll see that there's papers from 20th of August to the 19th of September in JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine. And they tell us about the, the Ebola virus disease, its history, how it presents, uh, this version of hemorrhagic fever, type of transmission, common clinical features, uh, and mortality. The approximate mortality is quoted as 50%. Uh, it was higher for initial cases at 85%. Uh, and this has obviously contributed to the lack of resources in developing countries. They talk about management options, uh, including proven public health methods to prevent spread, supportive care, uh, transfusions from recovered patients, where, which is poor evidence but occurs, 
novel therapies. We're probably all aware of the use of ZMAP in uh, the two seriously ill American volunteers and then in some other patients. And ZMAP is a immunotherapeutic agent, which is three monoclonal antibodies produced in the nicotinia plants and had been tested in macaque monkeys infected with Ebola virus and resulted in a survival benefit. There are other experimental agents, TKM, Ebola, um, AVI7537 and BCX4430 all being tested. And then there are ethical issues. The issues around these novel agents uh, using ZMAP, which has been labelled secret serum by the media, led to a WHO convened emergency panel that concluded unanimously that it would be acceptable on both ethical and evidential grounds to use as potential treatments for prevention of unregistered interventions that have shown promising results in the lab and in animal models but have not yet been evaluated for safety and efficacy in humans provided that certain conditions are met. They also say that physicians overseeing the use of these new agents have a moral obligation to collect and share all scientifically relevant data generated in order to establish the safety and efficacy of the interventions. What continues to be debated is that should these be agents uh, be used as compassionate treatments or as part of a clinical trial? Arguably, the decision should be based on providing the most benefit as quickly as possible. And with the problems of scarcity, that there are low supply of these agents, uh, and deciding who should receive them preferentially, healthcare workers, sick of less, sick Western volunteers, etc. The issue of clinical trials is an ethical dilemma because it is likely that without an RCT design um, pa where patients will receive best standard care versus best standard care plus novel therapy, that without that design there will be a systematic difference in allocation of novel therapies making interpretation of risk and benefit impossible. Finally there is the issue of inequity of access to healthcare in developing regions and inevitably the attention of the developed world will consider the inequity of global resources that lead to healthcare and living conditions in West Africa that allow this uncontrolled outbreak and high fatality rate to occur. There are future projections which are very concerning. Um, as of September the 14th, the doubling time of the epidemic was 15.7 days in Guinea, 23.6 days in Liberia and 30 days in Sierra Leone. The New England Journal of Medicine authors estimate that at that rate, by November there will be excess of 20,000 cases and uh, in the media this week there are suggestions that it will exceed a million. And finally, with the outbreak affecting the entire area of three countries and no real indication of control, the possibility that Ebola virus disease will become endemic in West Africa, something that had never been considered before, must be prepared for. So that's it for the Critique Journal Club for September 2014. Come to the website and have a look at the papers. Otherwise, we'll see you next month.